Hey, everybody. Welcome back to our mini-series all about the future of HR. I'm your host, Rodney Evans, and I am coming at you with our very first special guest episode. We gave Sam the week off, and instead, I'm here with Kiva Youssef. She is the Chief People Officer at Workweek, the founder and creator of the newsletter, I Hate It Here, which reaches over 100,000 people every week and which focuses on how HR teams can build great work cultures. She is also my friend. Heba, welcome to the show. Hey, I'm so excited to be here. Today on episode six, Heba and I are going to be talking about why she and so many HR professionals hate it here and ways to start changing that. But before we dive in, we do a check-in round. I don't know if you know that. I don't know if you've ever listened to my show, but we do check-in rounds here and we're going to do one with you. Okay. (laughs) So this week's question is, what is something that you love that is kind of embarrassing? Okay, here's something really interesting about me. I don't think I get embarrassed about very many things. Like it's been Mm. a really long time since I've been truly embarrassed. I don't know if I just lost all capacity of years of being just like an awkward teenager, but like I just don't get embarrassed Mm. as an adult anymore. So I'm just like, I Mm -hmm. don't care if you think what I think is weird or embarrassing. Um, So something that I love that maybe other people could perceive as embarrassing is reality TV. Mm. I love reality TV. It is fascinating to like, I know it's cut and edited, but watching human beings interact either in like a challenge show or in like a trying to find love show is really fascinating to me. I feel like you and I talked about this at that Alice in Wonderland bar. Yeah. I've had a friend tell me before, like, you're super smart about these, like, really relevant and intellectual things, and then all of a sudden you want to talk to me about reality TV. And I'm like, A lot of my smartest friends love reality TV. I know it's cut, but I can't help but, like, wonder. (laughs) I, like, sit there and I analyze these people. I'm like, God, who hurt them? Why are they behaving like this? What's their relationship like with their mom? Are they good colleagues? Like, these are the questions I'm asking myself while watching reality TV. It is embarrassing. Spoken like actually. an HR person, TBH. Uh, I love it. I mean, you and the rest of America, I think you're squarely in pop culture territory. Um, I also, I think I might just have passed the point in my life where I care about what people think. I'm not sure if I ever did as much as I maybe should have, but everything that I like that's embarrassing is just like lowbrow. Like, I love McDonald's. I love Miller Lite. I love Jack Johnson. And I'm just like, all right, is this reflective of my taste broadly? No. Are these a few of my favorite things? Yes. Yes, they are. And um, yeah, I just, uh, I don't know. I like stuff that's a little bit corny sometimes like that. I just, for Same. my birthday, one of my friends got me the most adorable Miller Lite t-shirt. I love that. <laughs> it's awesome. Wear your brand proudly. You're like, I, I love this and I don't care. It's really fun being unapologetic about the things you love. Also, everything I've loved recently has become cool, and it's mm. I've never been more annoyed in my life. Like I have been reading fantasy romance for like years, and now mm. because of TikTok, which good things and bad things have come from that, now everyone's reading, and it's suddenly cool to be re- a reader. And I'm like, I'm over here having been called a dork most of my life for like loving right. the things I love, and now I'm cool. Right. Like right. I had a moment. Am I it? Did I make it? <laughs> You're like, I was here first. I was here first, nerds. I'm the OG hipster of this. <laughs> I liked it before it was cool, okay? <laughs> that is spoken like a middle-aged person. Okay. <laughs> I just, 
I know I've reached the age where when teenagers are like, uh, have you heard of Bob Dylan? I'm like, shut up. You shut up. (laughs) (laughs) You don't get to talk about this. (laughs) Which is like exactly how my parents felt. You know what I mean? It's just, uh, I thought I would be cooler than them, but no. Um, Okay. Let's talk about HR stuff because otherwise we'll just do this for another 40 minutes, I suspect. So you have this wildly successful newsletter called I Hate It Here, which is the funniest title for a newsletter. Also, people subscribe. Also, the graphic looks like a ransom note, which really made me laugh and I think is why I hit subscribe. I was just like, I appreciate this. Um, So how did that newsletter come to be a thing? And also, how did you choose the ransom note font? Oh, the ransom no font. That's a good story too. So it's a two-parter. I never thought about being a content creator. I was always afraid of like what I would say if I was given a platform to say it, because I think I have a lot of bold thoughts about HR and what we could be doing better. And so when I went to work at Workweek, I had met our founders, Adam and Becca. And in one call that was supposed to be 15 minutes, it lasted an hour and 45 minutes on a random Friday. And it was supposed to just be like a check-in to see how they were doing as they were building their startup. And it ended with them telling me, we want you to come work at Workweek, but we also want you to write a newsletter about HR. Mm. And I remember hanging up the call being like, those two do not know what they just offered me. Like, do they know? (laughs) I mean, on the call though with them, I did pitch them. They were like, what are your thoughts about things in HR? And I told them like three things off the bat that I thought like all HR people should be thinking about or talking about. And they were like, wow, this is wonderful. Like, just write a newsletter the way you talk about HR and we think it'll really resonate with people. Mm-hmm. And so after much back and forth and honestly, a lot of doubt from me, I called one of my oldest friends and I said, they want me to write a newsletter. Do you think I should do this? And she was like, your childhood dream was to be a writer. You did not mm. let a day go by where you didn't remind me that you wanted to be a writer. Yeah. And she was like, this is your chance to do your childhood dream. And I was like, yeah, but I want to write fiction, like B2B. Like who wants to read about, (laughs) who wants to read a B2B newsletter about HR? And she was like, just make it like you want to talk about these things with someone. And I was like, yeah, okay, I'll do that. So I took the job and we launched I Hate It Here in September. And the story of naming it was, it was in my contract, it says like unnamed HR newsletter, which we laugh Mm. about all the time now. The creators at Workweek are allowed to name their newsletters whatever they want. But there still was a lot of back and forth about the name I hated here. And our CEO tells this story all the time where he was not about the name. He was like, Mm. no, no one's going to want to read that. And I was like, if you just trust me, HR people, like there's a dark side of us where we are tired of having to be like the cheery, positive, like front presenting face of the company that behind the scenes we're dealing with so much, we kind of might hate our jobs. Yeah. Yeah. And so we launched it with the name and we did that in September and now we're coming up on one year and we've crossed almost a hundred thousand subscribers. So that's been kind of crazy. Yeah. You tapped a vein. Yeah. I think the hardest thing about this is like, there's no recipe for like how I did this or why it's successful. I just wrote from my heart and how I felt. And that is Mm -hmm. really corny. (laughs) That is so corny, but I felt like every single HR person out there, I never saw myself working in HR because Mm -hmm. I have this like very raw edge to me where I I want to say everything I'm thinking and I'm very direct with friends professionally. If I can say the thing I need to say, I will very directly say it. Um, And I never saw myself in any HR creators. Well, I think that 
that's why it works so well. I mean, you know, I started my career in HR and the gallows humor in HR is real. Like when you are on an HR team and you're sitting in a bullpen, first of all, funniest fuckers in the building, always. <laughs> and you'd never know it at the town hall. Like you never know it when you've got a mic in your face and you're supposed to be presenting the, the company's new culture deck. But behind the scenes at 10 o'clock at night when you're like working on Excel spreadsheets, it is funny back there and dark. And it has to be like, you're seeing the underside of the culture. You're trying to design for and nurture the best aspects of humanity while you're triaging the worst aspects of humanity day in and day out. And like, you have to have other people to do that with. And I think to me, that's what you have done in terms of just naming out loud that that's the truth of the profession. Yeah. It's also like the the positive side of the newsletter. I have a lot of people who write in and they're like, I don't want to subscribe to this because it's too negative. And I mm. always respond to every reader email. I really do. Because I'm like, I got time. I'll, I'll respond. Like they took the time to write to me. I'm going to take the time to respond. And I usually respond with, you know, the name was born from like something I felt about work, but it's also a lot of HR people's deepest fear that their mm-hmm. employees are feeling that way. Yes. Absolutely. And so the newsletter doesn't just like rag on everything. It says, here's something that's like really wrong. Here's how it's impacting your people. And here's what you HR can do so that your employees never end the day thinking I hate it here. Because so many of us do. Yeah, exactly. I'm sure you get lots of reader emails. What aspects of the newsletter or maybe even what particular issues do you think have resonated the most with your community? I think the fact that I always put tips for HR people on like what to do. And then every mm-hmm. now and then I always include a self-care section that's like, here's how to take care of yourself while doing this in HR. Because a lot of the things that we have to do as hard as it is for the employees, it's also just as hard for us. Like mm-hmm. we don't want to lay off people. We also understand how hard it is when someone's terminated, what it yep. means on their livelihood. And so I think that weighs on HR people a lot. And so I try to include in the newsletter as much as possible. Here's how to take care of yourself if you are struggling with having to execute this thing that you really don't believe in. Yeah. I get a lot that, of that <laughs> Execute the thing you don't believe in. We've obviously, as you know, been doing a ton of research and publishing and work in HR orgs and spaces in the last six months or so. And I, one of the things I want to talk to you about was burnout. I think there are lots of reasons that HR people are burnt out, but I think two of them are in what you just said. One of which is nobody takes care of HR while HR is meant to take care of the org. And two is HR is meant to follow through on stuff that they didn't decide, don't necessarily agree with, and in some cases runs counter to their own morals or beliefs. And I think that lack of, frankly, agency in the role is a really significant cause of burnout. I mean, you know, all of the research on burnout says that the counter to burnout isn't rest, it's meaning and agency. So I'm interested in just like sort of hearing from you, how does that land in terms of what you see and sense? And also like, what should be done about that? Because that's not great. And that's not going to work in the long term. No, it's kind of the uncomfortable truth that I think a lot of HR people inherently know. But when Mm. we start putting words out there more about it, it's difficult because 
HR people aren't going to say, well, it sucks here because the founders are terrible or because right. these executives are awful. Like it, right. we can't say that. Like it's the company that employs us, right? right? But the reality is if a company environment is not great, I would say look to the leaders and look to the founders about the behaviors that they are exhibiting because that mm. is probably what is causing all of it. Mm. But HR people can't say that. I can't publicly say, hey, you hate this. Well, it's because of the founder of this company. Mm-hmm. But that's the reality. Yeah. And so what can be done about it is like HR people, I think, also are burning out because we realize that we can't control everything. But at the same time, we are most frequently blamed for everything. Right. Right. And I almost wish like I could shake employees and be like, hey, if you hate it here, it's not my fault. Right. It's actually somebody else's fault. Like I'm doing my best behind closed doors to like fight the battles, get you the benefits you want, get you those like market rate salaries. I'm fighting all those battles. And ultimately, I don't even get to decide. Mm-hmm. And so I, in last week's newsletter, I wrote a note where I said, or a line that said, until HR people run their own companies, like our hands are tied mm-hmm. until we are the founders and the CEOs we have to honestly like bend to the will of someone else. Mm-hmm. I wonder in some of those, because I have been there <clears throat> where it's like you're in the room with the CEO screaming at each other. And then five minutes later, you're in front of the employees being like, so here's the decision that we came to. Right? <laughs> it's like, right? I, we didn't agree. We agreed to disagree. And now I have to say the thing that actually he chose. Um I wonder how much that has to do with transparency, because I know that at least at the ready, and we don't have a formal HR role, I doubt we ever will, and we're small, you know, obviously things change at scale, we're less than 50 people, but I think one of the things that helps a lot is like, there's just not really any decision that is made at the ready that isn't explained fully to people. So it's not like I don't represent someone else's opinion ever. And no one else ever represents my opinion as someone who holds formal authority. And so when it's like, well, I don't like that this benefit was changed. Why is that? It's like, okay, well, let's have a look at the PL. Here's what's going on. Here were the options that we considered. Here were the four possible scenarios. Here's why we picked this one. What do you think? And generally, the answer is like, well, that makes sense. And so I wonder like how much daylight could be a disinfectant with HR because I do see a lot of that backroom negotiation with the CEO and then having to message it to the employees as being a big part of the problem. Yeah. I mean, we're just the messenger sometimes too, right? Yeah. Like I think one of the hardest parts about doing this job is sometimes it's at odds so much with your own values that when you become the messenger of something, but it's not something that is aligned with mm-hmm. your values it almost like eats away at your soul. Yeah. Not to, not to get like existential. No, it's like true. That's why I left. Out. Yeah. It's quite, it's quite interesting. It's quite interesting. I think transparency is hard for a lot of people too, especially founders and leaders, because they worry about how it's going to reflect on them. Yeah. And my caveat, my the counter to that is always like, how is this going to reflect for your employees is it's more about like making them feel secure and that they understand things than it is about making you look like the good guy. Right. Right. And knowing that like people are going to tell their own stories. So I would rather just have the conversation in public than 
make the declaration and just hope that people interpret it the way that I want them to. Then they probably won't. You have to tell people things like seven times, five to seven times is the number. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) So you're the first chief people officer I've had on the show. We've been having other thinkers, HR thinkers, but not people in the job. And one of the things that we've been talking about a lot is the fact that the chief people officer role and the HR business partner role were meant to be strategic in their construction. And most people who hold those roles are not finding that 80% of their day goes to doing the most valuable aspects of the job in terms of what the business needs. How is that for you? How much of your job is like strategic versus like reacting, keeping the lights on, et cetera? And also you talk to one gajillion other HR people. What do you think it's like out there? I think in an ideal world, your HR leader gets to be the most strategic person. In Mm. reality, things are changing so rapidly day to day that oftentimes we are thrown into things and we are forced to be reactive. Mm-hmm. It's a delicate balance line. Like there are weeks where I'm like, wow, I just get to dream this week. And there are other weeks where I'm like, I am in the thick of it. Like yeah. Back-to-back meetings, lots of conversations, many moving pieces. It is really hard. Also, a lot of HR teams honestly are understaffed. Mm-hmm. And so we're the last to be given resources. And so a lot of times your leadership in people and HR end up executing more work than they want to because their team is so understaffed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how do you coach people to make time for what's important? Because I think that, you know, going back to the beginning of this conversation where it's like HR is likely to get blamed for stuff when it goes wrong. And also, I mean, how many times have you heard from CEOs like HR doesn't create value in my organization or whatever? And it's like, yeah. in order to do that, there has to be, time and space and skill to do that. Um, How do you tell people or maybe how do you tell yourself to make the time to deliver stuff that is really impactful to the company and not just get swept away and filling potholes? Yeah, I've gotten better at, I'm trying to work on this lifelong goal of mine to say no to more things. Mm -hmm. And I think where I am lucky is that my founders also have been encouraging me to do the same. They don't want me like executing day-to-day work. They want my brain power on how this work impacts our company, our industry, our standing. Like that's what they want to hear my thoughts on more than they want to hear, hey, I went and had that tough conversation and had to do that thing. Mm -hmm. So I think like having founders that also advocate for you having the time to really use your strategic brain, also founders that believe that HR is a strategic component of the company are the best type of founders and leaders you could work with. There are CEOs that do not believe HR is valuable. And I think those leaders are going to be more likely to want you in the day-to-day throwing you everything. And there are other leaders that know that HR, culture, people, employee engagement, all of that really impacts the success of the company. Mm-hmm. And they're going to want you to do more strategic work. So finding the people that believe that you are that thinker in the room who can help guide the company correctly is going to be really important. I think it's such an important point because it's like if your peers on the leadership team or your boss as the CEO 
doesn't already think of the function as being strategically important, you can see how it naturally follows that it's like, well, let's just fill up her plate so that like we're getting something for our investment, even if what we're getting is just busyness. And so I think it's an interesting unlock to be like, that has to be the starting condition is that we believe that this is important. Otherwise, the rest of the design is going to like fall out from there. And the rest of the design is going to be like, let's get return on this investment that is just going to look like tactical and busy and operational and not that interesting. Yeah. And one of my strengths is my number one strength is actually strategic. If you've ever taken the Gallup Strength Finders, it ends up being my number one strength. It's been my number one strength for the last like five-ish years. And so I'm also really honest when I work with executives about who I am. And so I say like, if you want somebody who's going to think about the big ideas, how this impacts macro trends within like your environment, what you need to do for your people, who's good at building like long-term quarter over quarter strategy, I'm your person. If you want someone who is going to be in the day-to-day executing things, it's not me. It's not my strength. I'm not an executor. I lead with influencing strengths. I want to talk to people, help them understand how they can be better leaders, and then execute like long-term strategy. And so I think part of it is also coming to the table and saying like, here's what I'm really good at. I'd rather we use that than put me on something that I'm actually not that good at. And then I only can do like average type of work versus extraordinary type of work when I'm really good at something. Well, and even that, I think, is a big flip for a lot of HR people. You know, I do see HR leaders a lot of times in organizations that have a bit of, like, the martyrdom complex. That's like, I'm just here to do what people need, and I'm just here to help and care for and whatever. I understand that. And also, when you take that mindset on, and that's your starting disposition, then it's really hard to assert like, okay, I am going to be saying no. I am going to be looking at the long term. I am going to let some of these fires burn themselves out so that I can do the thing, the strategic things that are going to have broader impact to the system. When you've sort of branded yourself as like, I'm just here to help. It's like, well, people are going to fill your week up with the helping because everybody wants help all the time. I think HR people are like the most empathetic people at any company. It like Mm. really attracts some of the kindest, like most thoughtful people I've ever met in this profession. And every single one of them is burnt out and tired. Yeah. And I have to remind my friends, I remind readers, like you have to take care of yourself. It's actually like the last note before my email signs off every week. It's like, know that I see the work that you are doing. I support you, but like take care of yourself. Yeah, Because this job can encompass you and like engulf you where you say yes to everything, you take care of everyone and you forget to take care of yourself. And the work is only going to be as good, as thoughtful, as creative as you are. Mm -hmm. And if you're taking care of everyone, how are you going to be creative and build for the future of HR? Yeah. It's impossible. I totally agree. And to just be like a little bit spicy, it's like, Everybody behaves the way they behave because they are also getting something out of it. Mm -hmm. I often have these conversations with folks where they're like, I want to be strategic. That's what I signed up for, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm just snowed under and, you know, being the, the helper of the organization, being the empath, being the ear, being the shoulder, being the whatever. What are they getting from doing that? Because they are getting something out of it or they wouldn't keep doing it all the time till they're totally burnt crisp. 
yeah, we like to feel needed. What right? Mm. Isn't that like the the Maslow hierarchy of needs? Like, don't right you feel there. needed at some point? Is that in it's there? I don't belonging. Know. I always forget. <laughs> yeah, like we belongings we in there. And HR so often. So this is like such a good point. Ooh, I love this. We might take a tangent for a second, but go for um, it. We like need to feel needed. And oftentimes at every organization, like every time I've joined a company and I've been the first HR person, the first comment everyone makes is, ooh, HR is here. We can't have any more fun. And so oftentimes we are on the outside of everything at the company. Mm. When you're in the leadership position, I can't have best friends at work because I also know every single piece of confidential data and I cannot show that I prefer one leader over another, that I'm closer to one leader over this person, that I like this employee more than this employee. Like we have to keep everyone at arm's length almost in every company. And so I think we give ourselves more to every company because we want to feel needed and like we belong. Mm. And we don't get to a lot of times. It's so lonely in this job to like not get to tell people, like I some days I don't tell people like, leave me the fuck alone. Like, yeah. <laughs> do not today. I'm not in the mood for you. Like, get out of here. But like, I can't do that. And sometimes I want to show up and be like goofy and talk about like my personal shit. And I don't get to do that. That's so interesting. I think you're the first HR person who's ever said that to me. Have you always been like that? Like, have you always had this, like, I need to stay arm's length and not play favorites, et cetera, et cetera. Cause like, I'll, I'll tell you, I was, I was young when I was in HR. I was younger than you. I was a long time ago and I definitely had best friends and played favorites. So that's like interesting. And I'm curious if you've always known that or how you got to this point. My first few jobs in HR, no. I feel like I was like the fun. I want to have fun, learn all about yeah. me. Let's hang out on the weekend. Let's go to brunch. And then I think there became a shift where like I became really cognizant of how my actions were being viewed. And mm. I hated it. Like I, I really hate like rules and putting people in boxes and like making people behave a certain way. I just don't like it. But I also became cognizant of is my behavior being looked at and then people determining if I'm qualified or eligible to do my job. Eligible Interesting. To my job. And I, you want people in HR to trust you so much and to trust your judgment and your character because a lot of the things they tell you and the decisions you make are being scrutinized through such an intense lens. Mm. And I kind of had this switch when I took on more leadership roles where I did become a bit more buttoned up. Like I still get feedback all the time that like you're the realest HR person we've ever worked with. I'm a little bit more buttoned up. Like I don't, I'm not like going out and partying with our staff or employees at work week. And they were like, why don't you like want to cut loose and hang out with us? And I'm like, I want to, but Mm -hmm. I also need you to trust my judgment every day. And Mm -hmm. if I do, are you still going to be able to trust my judgment? Mm-hmm. And they were like, yeah, absolutely. And I was like, wrong. Our unconscious bias does not work like that. Unconsciously, you're going to be thinking like, does she prefer this person over that person? Is this the way she makes decisions so flippantly? So I started to just try to create some distance so that people could still trust that I was as impartial as possible when doing my job. So interesting. I feel like we have like already highlighted two ways in which this role is just like designed for misery. The like 
not actually having authority over the water you have to carry, the decisions that get made, and the like desperate desire of empaths to feel connected, but having to intentionally stay somewhat distant in order to maintain the kind of relationships that you want to have. Yeah. And there are people that will possibly tell you that that's wrong and I shouldn't have to behave that way. I have just found being a woman, I think in the workplace is also kind of hard and not identifying as white is also kind of difficult. Like there's all of these things in society that make us look at our behaviors and the lens through which we view how we behave and like what standard we have to behave to. Mm -hmm. And I think our perspective and our lived experience impacts how we behave. And so ultimately in the workplace, I felt as a woman and as a person of color, like I couldn't behave that way. I was being held to a different standard. And that might just be my experience in life, coloring my perspective. And for me in this role, it's important for me to be viewed as a leader and someone respected. And with that, I felt like I had to almost create that distance. I mean, and I wish that was very understandable. Case. Of course, of course. You wish that you could also be like, you know, shaking up a champagne bottle and corking it into the ceiling. But I totally take your point. I understand. And it's like, you know, the strike against you is going to be different than the strike against the white male leader. So different. This is also a tangent, but the Barbie <laughs> movie shook me to the core. I'm going tonight. To oh my God. there's this one scene when you get there, I think you'll remember this moment, but it's just like a monologue about how women have to behave a certain Mm. way. And this job in HR, I I think I can confidently say, sorry to every other executive out there, this is the hardest job at any company. Mm. It just is, without a doubt. The amount of things that are thrown at us every day, the perspective which we have to approach things, the empathy, the care we give to the employees, all the different levels that we're dealing with and like managers, executives, employees, all their issues, everything we're seeing. And I think this job feels almost impossible at times. And then you add in our identity and the things that we are dealing with in life and in the workplace and how the workplace often mimics society. So society's problems become your workplace problems. Mm -hmm. It's just so much. And so there's a scene in the Barbie movie that like really killed me because I was like, I feel it in my soul. I can't wait. I'll obviously slack you tomorrow about it. Can't wait. I can't wait. One of the things I wanted to talk to you about is the like CEO CPO relationship or founder CPO (laughs) relationship. Because talk about like the keeper of the secrets. You know, when I have been an HR leader, whoever the business leader was, whether they were like the head of a function at a bank or a CEO in a smaller company, you know, I was the one. Like I was the one who knew about the divorce and the infidelity and the fraud and the worry about making the quarter and the issues with the co-founder. And you're like the consigliere. And then also you're supposed to be helping them to design a workplace well, and you're supposed to be representing the voice of the employee population and like have a beat on what's happening in the organizational culture and be the censor who comes to the CEO and is like, here is strategically where we're headed. I think that's a really tricky polarity to manage, or at least Mm -hmm. it was for me. Um, And I'm curious sort of like, 
how you've experienced that or what you hear? I think that relationship between the CPO and the CEO is one of the most crucial ones to get right, but it is one of the hardest relationships because if you are doing your job correctly as a CPO, you are holding the CEO very accountable. And that accountability looks like telling them uncomfortable things about their behavior, calling out their unconscious bias, almost reprimanding them about the things that they may do that they're not supposed to do. And so that relationship can be very tense. And so getting it right from the start and starting on the relationship by saying, like, what do we want to get out of working together is super important. Mm -hmm. And so, like, I have that conversation very quite regularly with our CEO. Like, please don't be mad at me is something I'll say to him sometimes. And he's always like, stop saying that. Like, you don't, you don't need to clarify. And I'm like, in the past, I've been burned by this relationship. And so Mm -hmm. I came into my current one, really trying to work on how do we trust each other and understand that if we are questioning what the other person is doing, it comes from a place of good and not bad. Mm -hmm. And so I think building that trust from the very beginning is what makes that relationship successful. And ultimately, like that person needs to trust you trust your judgment and trust your expertise for you to be successful as a CPO. Yeah. And also it's like without trust in the things that you just said, you are not going to have the credibility to challenge their behavior or mindset. You know, it's no different being an external consultant who has those kinds of conversations. If the project sponsor who's on the C team doesn't think I know what I'm talking about, then when I yeah. say, here's my thoughts on your compensation structure, or here's my thoughts on your org structure, or here's my thoughts on how you're creating your strategy, he's going to be like, fascinating, let's move along. You know, it's like, if you don't have that level of trust, you're not going to have that level of credibility that you need to actually make change, which is fundamental to this role. The CPO role is the keeper of the evolution of the organization. And yeah. it, everything that you're describing is like all of the nudging of the employees and the executives, but also of all of the conditions, the policies, the rules, the roles, et cetera, that create culture, you know, from which culture emerges. And that's a big task. They have to believe in your vision too. If you are like a progressive HR person, I feel like that's a bad way to describe it. But if you're like a progressive HR person and your CEO is not, bridging that gap is going to be near impossible. And so I encourage anyone when they're taking a people job to really get FaceTime with the leadership team before accepting the job to understand what it is they want to do. Yeah. Because if they're a return to office CEO and you are a, I'm a remote work stand people person, it's never going to work. Yep. This is not like an opposites attract love story, right? Like it is a... (laughs) It's not going to happen. Love story. like It's a divorce love story. Yeah. (laughs) So um, the first time we met, I talked to you about mission-based teaming and how I think that HR should sort of be at the center of mission-based teams, bringing cross-functional groups together to get the most important work done. You like got it immediately. It took 10 seconds and you were like, yeah, that, sure. So first of all, We've talked a bunch about that on prior episodes of this podcast that will be out by the time this conversation airs. First of all, I would love like generic thoughts on HR using a structure like mission-based teaming. And then I'm going to ask you about your top missions personally. 
Oh, such a good question. I think when you ex- explained it to me, I might've said, oh, the squad model. Mm-hmm. Is that what I said? Very similar. Yeah. So, yes. Yeah. I am like fascinated by that because functions within HR rarely ever can exist without impacting the work of another function. Totally. And so I think someone asked me once, like they viewed themselves as a coach. They were like, what do you think HR is like? And I don't know if I've told you this analogy. Mm -mm. I'm like, HR is the doctor of the organization because nothing can happen in the organization without impacting usually something else. And Mm. so a lot of HR people, and I've started to think of myself this as like a doctor, you're diagnosing the problem and why it's happening and what are the symptoms of the problem. So when you talk about mission-based teams, it like really resonated with me because nothing we build within one function doesn't impact so many other things. And so getting together and doing that type of teamwork around a mission, coming together, do they dissipate like squads afterwards? They do. do we keep... It's really interesting to me. And I think it's like a very, it's a new way of thinking about work that is so different from the traditional way we've thought where it's like, you are an HRBP, you only do these things. And then once it impacts this team, you hand it off and it goes away from your mind. Right. And so I think it's like getting the best skills from everyone across the org to like come together on something they're really passionate about and build probably your highest quality product. Yes, exactly. just doing it on my own. Exactly. Yes, and... To continue in your metaphor, one of the things that I often say about the value of mission-based teaming is when things are built inside of functions or inside of silos that are meant to be used or consumed by others, those others generally reject the organ. The body rejects the organ because they're like, I was not involved in the creation of this kidney. No, thank you. Even if it's perfect, even if it's great, if you don't have the end user and the other requisite roles along the value chain involved in the creation, it's really hard to make something that works in a complex system. People want to have a say in the things that impact their day-to-day at work. And as annoying as that is as an HR person, those opinions, if I just listen, their buy-in is going to be so much higher than if I just rolled it out on my own and made them do what I told them to do. Exactly. We've always done work a certain way. And I think human beings are creatures of habit. We are. There's like a bunch of books that tell us that, right? That we just do the same thing because we think that's what works. And we've been working a typical nine to five since the industrial revolution which was is literally mind-boggling to me that that was when the eight-hour workday was invented and we have not revolutionized that. And I think that the piece of mission-based teaming that is really interesting to me is the way we've always done work is not really working in a lot of ways. And a lot of the problems that we have to solve as HR people are outcomes of the way we do work. And if that's the case, then the thing that excites me most about like mission-based teamwork is it is a different way to do work. Yeah, it is. And as we've talked about in other episodes of this show, the reason it works as well as it does is because it's also a container to work in a different way. So when you get that group together, it's like, okay, now everybody is away from home. Now nobody exactly gets to do it the way they do it 
in finance or in HR or in their home team or the way their boss likes it, now we have a little bit of space and a little bit of safety to say, well, how do we want our meetings to be? Well, what do we want our hours to be? Well, how do we want to yeah. like ship our work? Because because no, we can't do it everybody's way. So now this team picks the way of working that works for the mission. And it's just a much easier place to experiment with new ways of working than in a existing, persistent, static team. Yeah. Ugh. I just feel like we are not open to change as a society, which makes me sad for a lot of the work we do in HR, honestly, which is a lot of change. So on that note, if you had a magic wand, she's, folks, she's holding up her hand with her wand right now. We're going full circle with the fantasy. Um, you're a CPO, maybe yeah. at your organization, maybe at another organization, doesn't matter. What is one top mission where you're like, if we could nail this, like something seated in HR or that heavily, heavily impacts HR, if we could nail this, if we could reinvent or reimagine this one thing, it would be lightning. Do I have to deal with our same society? In this magic wand, do I get a new society or do I have to still deal? Let's constrain it to we still exist in this world because the aliens haven't taken us yet. They don't want us, honestly. They're like, thank you, next. (laughs) Thank you, next. We're not into these humans. We had a peak. We're good. Yeah, they're not what we're looking for, honestly. Bye. Um, If I could wave my magic wand, this is so hard because. I think like performance management and feedback are intertwined. That would be it for me. Like I think performance management is so broken. It was like one of my earliest newsletters that I wrote. It ended up on Hacker News, which scared the shit out of me because I was like, oh my God, these people are going <laughs> to hate me. And everyone was like, wait, she, what she's saying is right. And I was like, yes, yes. thank you. Like, I think performance management is broken. It's not safe for the employees you're not actually getting good feedback. Most companies do them once or twice a year, which is really not relevant for performance. I hate this concept of viewing performance as a moment in time measure, whereas performance varies day over day. Mm -hmm. And so there's no system right now that exists that really captures that day over day performance. And I don't really know if I want there to be a system that does that because that almost feels like weird and you're tracking the employees in a way that I don't love. But I just think it's very broken and it's not safe. Oftentimes it's rooted in so much bias. Who gets promoted? Who gets the salary increase? Who is celebrated? And it is really frustrating to be an HR person and to have to tell leaders like, why are you promoting this person? Talk to me about their achievements. Actually, this other person on your team has achieved more. Why aren't you considering them? Mm -hmm. I just don't think there's a good system out there. And I think a lot of people are thinking about how this changes and revolutionizes. And part of it is how we give feedback. And again, that's the reason I asked is if I get a new society is because a lot of our feedback is bias, right? And so it's training leaders and managers to filter their feedback through a lens of where is this feedback actually coming from? Uh And statistically speaking, they've shown that like women get more feedback about their personality and men get more feedback about their achievements, which Uh is bullshit. Of course. And so we all know that data. And don't even get me started on AI and people being like, what AI could help us write non-biased performance reviews. It's like, no. No, AI comes from the internet. So that's that's where bias lives. Exactly. So that's one magic wand. If I could wave and I think 
if I had all the time in the world to think about it and dream about it, maybe I could come up with something a little better. But I think it would take years of like innovating it every single time to actually get to an ideal state for performance management. So that's your top mission. That seems to be everybody's. Here's my super hot take on performance management and feedback. It's actually, it's two takes rolled into one. One is there isn't a better system, just get rid of it to start. Just get rid of it to start. In a third of cases, statistically, it makes performance worse just going through. So you're not making anything better. You're just making it worse. So just get rid of it to start. And then like, if you're, you know, if you're an org designer, get rid of it. And then for a year, listen to what's missing in the system. Listen to what the need really is, whether it's about feedback, whether it's about metrics, whether it's about job crafting, whatever, like notice what ripping that thing out that is supposed to do a lot of jobs and actually does no jobs, like leaves behind. And the second piece is, this is a rant for another day, but I think in capitalist America, late stage capitalist America, people people derive so much meaning and so much identity from work the requirement for belonging and the constant assessing of whether I am in or in danger of being out, and the fact that our literal healthcare is based on whether we stay in or out, makes having a system that tells us whether we're likely to get bounced out really dangerous. It's like there is no incentive or motivation for me as an individual to come to you as my manager and have an honest conversation about how I'm doing. Every single incentive nudges me to just sell Hibba on why not to bounce me out of this place that is deeply meaningful for me and which I rely on for my survival. So it's like you can't have all of that exist together and have it be designed well. You have to start to disaggregate those pieces. Yeah. The compensation piece too with performance, like not even the job security, but people associating, like I can only make more money if I'm a top performer and the cost and inflation and everything being so high to just live. Now people are under this like unrealistic expectation. Like I got to put in the grind. I got to sacrifice everything so that I can be the best at this job to maybe get like a 10% raise. Exactly. It's all spaghetti It's all knotted up together. And that feels like a place to wrap up this conversation, even though I feel like we could talk forever. Um, Hibba, did you have fun on our podcast today? So fun. So much fun. I probably said things I shouldn't have said. (laughs) Just kidding. Perfect. Um, Then I did my job. You know, you did a, I love talking to you. You know that. And I think you push me to think about things really critically and in like new and interesting ways. So I'm, so grateful our paths have crossed and I love everything you're doing. Thank you. Tell all of our listeners where they can find you and learn more about all of the things that you are saying to all of the masses. Uh, Workweek.com. You can Google I hate it here. Fun fact. It's the first thing that comes up now. Thank you. Hey, get it. (laughs) It's not Urban Dictionary anymore. It's me. (laughs) (laughs) I definitely screenshotted it the day I found that. Um, So you can Google I hate it here and find the newsletter and subscribe. I also have a community for HR professionals called Safe Space. It's a Slack-based community where we have in-person events once a month, also virtual events. And the Slack channel is probably my favorite thing because there's a channel called Screaming into the Void where you can anonymously scream about something you are dealing with in work. 
I love it. And no one has to know it's about CEO. So there's that. And LinkedIn, like every other human being on the face of the planet, not the aliens, where I'm on LinkedIn. They'll be here soon. So listeners, we have made it to the halfway point. And to celebrate, Sam and I are taking a little summer vacation. But we will be back in early September with seven more new episodes on the future of HR that you don't want to miss. Please keep sharing these apps with your HR friends. Send us your HR questions. Hook us up with your CHRO or your HRBP. And finally, thanks as always to Taylor for making us sound good. This miniseries is produced by The Ready, where we help organizations around the world change the way they work. You can get in touch with us by emailing fohr at theready.com. And as for all our HR friends out there listening, let's change ourselves first. 